uh, in a minute, I'll read Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Uh, but before we get there, I want to lead up to that. Uh, obviously, we live in a very divided time in our nation, and the hostilities are palpable. Uh, speaking of America, of course, here, Satan is a great divider and is a master at stirring up hatred and strife and bitterness and so forth. And yet his primary attack is on the church uh, to stir us up to strife and to bitterness and to hostilities and division. So we do well to take heed to those admonitions in scripture that uh, where we are exhorted to keep the unity of the faith and the bond of peace. And it would seem that Philippians 3, 7 through 11 is not really a passage suited to helping with that or that it's a little off topic, but I think you'll, you'll understand when I get there. Um, first, I just want to deal with the elephant in the living room, and that is the differences that Christians do have with one another or between one another. And I'm sure you've noticed that not all churches are identical. Uh, even when we exclude the heretical ones, not all Christians are identical, even within a single congregation. There's different convictions and different views on things. So I want to just mention some of these differences. And if you've not taken your blood pressure medication today, now would be a good time. Um, hopefully we can all handle it. Uh, COVID, what do we think about it? And what do we think should be the proper response to it? Baptism, who are the proper subjects and what is the proper mode? Church polity or government structure, how, sh how should it be governed? Uh, is there a Christian diet? If so, what should we eat or not eat? Alcohol, abstinence or moderation? Christmas and Easter, should they be celebrated? How often should the Lord's Supper be observed? Should it be open to all believers or just church members? What version of the Bible is the best version? What kind of music should the church sing? Contemporary songs, traditional hymns, or psalms, or some combination of the three? What about musical accompaniment? Should churches have nurseries? What about Sunday school? What about head coverings for women? Can you ever get divorced? If so, can you ever get remarried after a divorce? To what degree is the fourth commandment instructive for the New Testament Lord's Day? Can we buy or sell on Sunday? Which spiritual gifts continue and which have ceased? Differences on eschatology, amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism or historic premillennialism. And I could go on. That's just sort of scratching the surface. Um, a clarification, I'm not suggesting that any of these things are unimportant, and I'm not suggesting that answers to these questions are unknowable, that, that they're impossible to know. I'm not suggesting that the disagreements that proceed from those questions are just a toss-up, a 50-50 toss-up. I'm not suggesting that studying these matters is a fool's errand. I'm just stating a fact that the differences do exist, even amongst genuine Christians. 
I'm not interested in an awful lot of things that go by the name ecumenical, uh, which turn unity into a God and sacrifice truth in order to get at it. But I am suggesting that unity is possible. It must be, for the Bible presupposes it. And while true biblical unity doesn't require us to leave our doctrinal statement at the door, it also does not require me, or it, 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 it does require me to endeavor to find common ground with other genuine Christians who don't subscribe to every point of my personal doctrinal statement. So now we come to Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Again, you're familiar with the passage. He's been talking about his uh, curriculum vitae, you know, his his uh, resume in the faith before he was converted and, and how he excelled in the things of the law. More than that, he says, I count all things things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. I like the translation dung better. Um, I, th I think it, the, the smell is better uh, for what he's talking about here and count them but dung so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What righteousness comes from God? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ who came down from God to us. Jesus came to earth not merely to die the death that we should have died. He first came to live the life we should have lived. If he had come to simply die and die at the hands of a cruel, uh, a cruel taskmaster, he could have been killed by Herod as well as by Pilate. He needed to live. He needed to live the life that we should have lived to overcome and undo Adam's failure, his disobedience, and put in place of it a perfect obedience to the law of God. So he came to fulfill the moral requirements that God has for man, and that is our righteousness. His righteousness is our righteousness. It's been imputed to us by faith, and here's the main point. We can't add to it. We can't beautify it. It's already as beautiful as it can be. It's perfect. You can't make something that's perfect more perfect. It's the righteousness of Christ in which we stand. When we talk about what makes or breaks us, what, what we need to stand before God in heaven and survive the experience, that's the righteousness in which we stand, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is not making the righteousness of Christ more beautiful. That's impossible. 
Sanctification is simply living consistently with the beauty of the righteousness of Christ. So when it comes to justification, being justified before God's throne, you cannot get any more righteous than you are now. Because you are righteous in Jesus, the righteous one whose righteousness is perfect. Unless you can somehow find a way to make yourself more righteous than Jesus, you are as righteous now as you will ever be. You are perfect in him. So with respect to our doctrinal statement, though it is vitally important, it isn't our righteousness. Christ is. And that's what we need to celebrate. That's what we need to obsess about and dwell on. It's his A+. plus imputed to our account. That's our actual righteousness, not our imagined one. And the more we dwell on that and rejoice in that, that true righteousness, the less likely it is that we'll turn our personal convictions into a substitute righteousness. For whenever we do that, unity is elusive for sure. There's, of course, a lot more to this and to this subject. And if you are interested, I've written a couple of booklets on it. I'd be happy to send them to you via email, just as an attachment. And, and I'll just put my uh, email address in the, uh, the uh, chat section over there, um, if you're interested in that. But as we come to the Lord this morning in um, prayer, let us rejoice in the righteousness which allows us to approach him in the first place. Um, we come before the throne room with boldness only because we stand in that perfect, blameless, spotless robe that Christ gives to us by faith.